everybody. Welcome to our second ever episode of Talking Hedging. I'm your host, Barry McCarthy, this morning, and uh, I'm really honoured uh, uh, to introduce our guest today, Michael Sullivan. Um, Mike's former uh, Princeton professor um, and uh, CIO of Credit Suisse. Um, so he's the author of a fantastic book called The Leveling, What's Next After Globalization? Um, the books, if you haven't read it, uh, it's, it's a brilliant analysis of the transition in world economics, finance, and power as the era of globalization ends and gives way to new power centers and institutions. So, uh, Mike, you're really, really welcome. Um, maybe we'll start off by, uh, you know, for those who don't know you, just to give a, a, a little bit about your background and, uh, you know, what, what brought you to where you are with this uh, book, The Leveling. Yeah, th thanks, Barry. Um, so I suppose, given uh, you, you're an Irish company, I'll start with, with kind of Ireland. So, you know, Ireland is interesting because it, it, it never, until the 90s, had much of an economic history. It was kind of a um, history of underperformance. And then in the 90s, something changed and you began to get big multinationals uh, setting up in Ireland. Interest rates fell, the economy took off. And very soon people started talking about the world globalization, um, which effectively means a world where everything is kind of interdependent and, and interconnected. And Ireland was a I suppose the poster child uh, of that and governments in China and places sent people to, to study the Irish miracle, uh, which uh, we know soon, soon collapsed. Um, and around the time, I, I was kind of fascinated by this. I wrote a book on Ireland and globalization. Soon after, I wrote another book called uh, What Did We Do Right?, which is trying to pull out the good things um, of the Irish miracle. So I, I've kept an interest in globalization since then. Um, and, and the recent book then is really about uh, globalization on a much bigger stage and the fact that it's coming to an end. You know, many of the forces that have driven it, uh, economics, uh, trade, migration in particular, uh, trust and collaboration between nations are beginning to come uh, to an end. And I had this kind of view before COVID and COVID, I think, is, has dealt a, a sort of fatal blow to, to globalization as we know it. Uh, and the book is really just trying to think about some of the, the options as to where we go. And, you know, in, in history, uh, we've had globalization once before in the late 19th century. That ended very, very badly, uh, of course, in a wave of economic crisis, protectionism, the First World War. And, and I don't think, you know, I'd probably sell more books if, I, if that was my, my view and I was more alarmist. I don't think that that's what's ahead of us. Um, what I think is ahead is, is a world where instead of having kind of, you know, one system, one dominant currency, you get three or four big uh, regions. It's a sort of multipolar world. And Europe will be, will be one of those. China will be another of the states. Uh, and then maybe the region sort of India to, to Dubai could be, could be another one. Right. Like when, when, when we talk about globalization, just to keep it simple for, for our listeners, what do yeah. we actually mean by globalization? Okay, so, so I suppose the globalization, I mean, if you picture, uh, you know, a kind of a globe and picture all the kind of flows, uh, the flow of, of trade, the flow of finance, you know, banks in, in the UK lending to people in, in China, uh, the flow of people, migration, uh, and the flow of ideas so that the last 30 years there was lots of flow and lots of interconnectedness and we um, you know in Ireland England people's diets changed uh, ideas were exchanged we got new technologies 
and all those flows and you can measure most of them are now slowing down. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So, you know, for me, globalization begun with the fall of communism and, and the rise of democracy in Eastern Europe. And the other, I, I suppose, uh, bookend to that now is uh, the end of democracy in Hong Kong. Hong Kong, if people know it, it is a, a, an exciting, thriving, dynamic city. Uh, but its democracy and its unique way of life is being is being snuffed out. So you can kind of see, you know, there's a there's a curtailing of, of financial flows. There's certainly a curtailing of uh, migration and a curtailing of of ideas. I'll give you one more example, which is probably clearer. If you take the internet, so in the middle 2000s, Google had about 30 percent market share of the Chinese internet space. Now it's got zero. So the internet has gone from being a kind of a global public good to being one that's looked at very, very differently in the big regions of the world. So in the States, you've got these huge, big, dominant uh, internet, social media companies, Microsoft, Facebook, uh, Apple, they, they're together 25% of the stock market. It's just a huge uh, chunk of the market and, and economic sphere. In Europe, we don't have those, uh, but in Europe, the, the attitude is that you have to protect consumers from, from the, the forces in the internet. So Europe focuses on, on regulation. And then China is very different. So China, uh, you have a massive e-commerce sector, uh, but also China is totally in control of its internet. It's kind of walled off its internet. You can't use Gmail, your Gmail if you go to, to China. Uh, and there's massive social control through social media in China. Okay, um, it, what's your opinion on the, the benefits versus you know, negative out, outcomes of globalization? Do you think globalization is, is a good thing or a bad thing on balance? I know it's, it's, a, it's not an easy question to answer, but I'm just looking for your personal opinion. Yeah, so it's, um, you know, I, th I think in terms of how globalization has affected many people's lives, they they will recognize the effects, but when they think about globalization, it's a, it's a very kind of, uh, it's a very, uh, I suppose, lofty philosophical uh, concept. And I think part of the problem as well that, that there's no office or ministry for globalization. It's just out there in the, in the ether and there's no one in a way to, to, to blame. Um, so, so I think globalization has been a huge positive. And in saying that, I just remind people that we, we often in Europe or, or the States, wherever else, we, we kind of forget about the rest of the world. Uh, so globalization has been the force that's lifted emerging markets uh, and it brought an end effectively to poverty in many emerging markets. It's seen the, the emergence of a huge uh, middle class, in, in a wealthy middle class in China. Um, it's brought infrastructure technology to the emerging world. So that, that's been a huge force uh, for positive. It's also, again, from a kind of a, an economics point of view, it's compressed uh, transaction costs. It's made business much, much more uh, effective. We have, you know, all these new kind of uh, organizational business uh, structures now. Uh, so on balance, it's been, it's been a great positive. And it's, and it's associated, I think, with things like the rise of democracy, which is now slowing down generally the spread of kind of progressive values uh, and the spread of, of openness. Again, that's been curtailed in some countries. The, the problem for globalization is that um, it's a gift and the gift 
the, the sort of the amplitude of the gift depends really on how countries use it. Ireland is a good example. Ireland has used globalization to great effect. You know, we have, a, we have a, created lots of uh, employment, lots of innovation. Now there's a wave of Irish companies. Yours is one. Stripe is a great example uh, of people who've kind of harnessed tech and, and know-how. Um, and the Irish tax system as well. I mean, corporate taxes are very low, but the Irish personal tax system is actually quite redistributive. And what's interesting is that the countries who are the most globalized in the world, Sweden, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Ireland, they all have kind of average or low levels of inequality. And inequality is something people talk a lot about today. So they, they kind of, for me, they prove the fact that globalization doesn't have to be associated with inequality. And you can- but Just manage... on that point, is, is, is this, I mean, I, I want to differentiate between correlation and causation. So um, you, you make it, you know, you make a statement there about uh, you're, you're linking kind of lower levels of inequality to higher levels of globalization. Is that correct? Um, and, and where do you, where do you, no, what, I think, I think what, what, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm, I'm saying that uh, small advanced uh, economies. So um, again, Belgium, Netherlands, Sweden, Ireland, they have open economies, so they're harnessed, they're hitched to globalization. And they have the, I suppose, the, the choice and the problem as to how do you take globalization and how do you digest it and how do you kind of spread its benefits to, to, to many people. Um, and most of them have done a good job because they have tax systems that, that redistribute uh, a lot of the benefits uh, of it. Um, so what, what I'm saying is that globalization is there and that there's a whole bunch of countries who have recognized that they're small countries, so they have to think strategically uh, about what's happening in the world uh, and, and, and deal with these side effects. There are other bigger countries, the UK and the US is a much, much greater example, who are part of the globalization story. I mean, the US is the engine of globalization, the UK was in the 19th century. And they haven't done a good job of um, spreading the benefits. Uh, and that, that's one of the reasons why you've had all this political volatility uh, in the States and, and also in the UK. Uh, you have, you know, I, I've gone back in time and I've looked at uh, periods in history when you've had extreme inequality uh, and wealth inequality today in the States. And even the difference between the, the pay of a, you know, a top CEO in the States to his entry-level worker, that's more extended than the relative differential between, I think, a Roman senator and a, a, a centurion or, or, or a servant or something like that. So it's on a scale uh, we haven't seen in ages. And I, and I think, um, you know, may, maybe just to add in one thing, what, what's, what's also why globalization is coming to an end is that it, it is beginning to produce lots of side effects that we haven't been very good at dealing with. So if you take, if you were to draw like a big chart going back a thousand years of economic history, okay, you looked at debt to GDP in the world, it's, it's pushing on to levels now we haven't seen since the Napoleonic Wars. If you looked at uh, the world, the average temperature of the world today compared to its, its long-term average, I mean, that's also at an extreme. Wealth inequality in the States is at an extreme. So there's a sort of sense that, um, you know, things are bubbling very, very hot and globalization has created forces that, that humanity hasn't been very good at, uh, 
at, at curbing and that the, the kind of the reckoning of these will, will, will be some way down the line. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. Um, so your book, your book was written in 2019, uh, which was before, obviously, recent uh, uh, pandemic-related events. And like, we've all seen, you, you know, huge structural shift in the way we, we do meetings, the way we do business. You know, there's been the rise of the, the digital economy. All sorts of businesses now have, you know, been created in, in the digital economy. And, and they, they're... They're not thinking, you know, about national borders. They're thinking, they're thinking globally, right? So, you know, just to just to counter, like, I mean, would you change anything in, in the book, you know, today if you wrote it today from from when you publish it in the light of what's happened, it, you know, with the acceleration of, of of the digital economy and the way we use technology as as an enabler of globalization. Um. Uh, the, on, on that question, there's nothing I, I, I would change because I, I actually think that companies today, um, first of all, more of them are thinking about some of the, these long-term issues, you know, so that the way companies are reacting to climate change and the ESG debate, that they're, they're certainly more, more reactive to it. I, I actually think that companies are um, becoming more susceptible to, to geopolitics, this kind of cleavage in the world of the US and China and then maybe maybe Europe. Um, so I'll give you two examples. One, one is HSBC, which in terms of its, its kind of top management structure has always been a, a British uh, company, almost with a sort of colonial foreign office type feel to it, even though 80% of the business is in China, Hong Kong. Um, and they've recently made a decision to take, uh, I, I'll you know provocatively say, take the side of China, but they've moved they're moving their, their, their headquarters to Hong Kong. Um, they have, you know, very publicly refused to criticize any of the recent developments in Hong Kong, uh, which recognizes that the, the future of that business is in China, not the UK. Uh, I think lots of other businesses are making decisions, um, investment decisions around Brexit and the future of, of the UK. Um, and also, I think in Europe, more and more European companies are now... I, I think beginning to, to, to look very urgently at the fact that, you know, Europe doesn't have, uh, it doesn't have good banks effectively. It doesn't have big, strong banks compared to the States. So you'll see more consolidation in Europe. Um, and I think there'll be moves afoot to create more uh, national champion type companies in Europe. So I actually think the companies are beginning to, to react to this. And I think, um, I think China in particular is going to be a very sensitive uh, topic for lots of American companies and they will have to change how they do business there. Uh, the same with Japanese companies and also Chinese companies now I think are being confronted by the fact that they can no longer, or they will face greater constraints in raising capital in the States. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, move, move, moving on um, from, from this point, if, if you're, you're, your theory is correct. Uh, what does that mean for the U.S. dollar supremacy and you know other major currencies? And you know where would you where would you be positioning yourself? Because this is a show about hedging, after all. And uh, yeah. I, you know, I want I want the listeners to 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 get the benefit of you know all of your years of experience in this, and and you know have some key takeaways on the U.S. dollar, the euro, and some other some other major currencies. So, uh, so, so I, I think the kind of the back, the backdrop I'm beginning to paint is is one where you know there's there's uh, unfortunately in a world of less 
collaboration, more rivalry, more strategic rivalry. And, and currencies are, are going to be part of that. Um, and, you know, there's all this talk about the US and China confronting each other in the South China Sea and, and the, the power of their militaries. The, the fact is that the, U, the, the area where the US is most powerful is in its currency. It is totally dominant. You know, I think 60% of all transactions worldwide are in the dollar, uh, 3% are in the renminbi. So I think that at the margins that will, will shift, but will shift slightly. Um, and it would be marked by efforts by both of these countries to try and get the emerging world to, to adopt their currency. The, the emerging markets world is, is already effectively dollarized across the board in, in different ways. Um, what, what I'm seeing talking to business people in Africa in particular is that in, in projects and transactions where they have the Chinese as a counterpart, there's a greater push now by the Chinese to, to get them to transact in the uh, renminbi. So, so that will, will continue. I, I think the Chinese are, for me, um, are being really sensible in how they're managing their economy. It's a kind of a, uh, you know, compared to uh, the West where countries are running up huge deficits, where central bank balance sheets are ballooning. The Chinese are being very sensible. They're trying at the margin to, um, uh, I think, to limit speculation, to limit um, cryptocurrencies. They are trying to, uh, you know, cool areas where there's a lot of, a lot of debt and actually allow private investors to go bust. So it's almost like a textbook capitalist um, uh, policy menu from the, the, the 1990s. And, and I think that- Say as a takeaway on the US dollar, I mean, are you generally, where do you generally see that going relative uh, to other currencies? Um, okay, so I, I see generally, I mean, if, if, if I think, um, I, I think from where we are today, the dollar will remain stable to slightly lower. And that lower depends on uh, the, or in the long term, this, the, the size of the US economy um, in the global economy and it, in its power. I mean, you know, empires, when empires begin to shrink, their currency always shrinks. So from here, I see the dollar's place in the world economy shrinking slightly. Um, at the margin, I think the, the Chinese um, currency would pick up in value. I think the biggest thing that can help that would be a deepening of financial markets in China. Uh, and, and Chinese financial markets relative to the States are not deep yet in terms of people using the Chinese government bond market as a kind of a, a safe haven. Um, so if they can achieve that, uh, and I think this will come after the next Chinese recession, then that's where the scope is in China to, to really build out the, uh, the, the scope of the renminbi. We, we shouldn't forget about Europe. Um, you know, I, I think the big issue in Europe, again, is that the the single currency is now uh, there to stay. Um, I, I, I just I dismiss any anyone who thinks the euro is going to fall apart. But there is now a choice, I think, to build out a banking system and a proper capital markets union uh, that can get can can generate a bigger uh, portion of the euro in terms of the, the global system. That that obviously means that some currencies will lose out. Um, I, I'm, I'm long-term very positive on the, the, the Swiss franc as a kind of a, a, a small uh, quality currency. Um, I think some of the Scandies may, may suffer at the same time. 
Um, I think the role of the pound will come into question. Uh, again, with Britain's place in the world, I mean, to me, there's no clear plan for global Britain. Um, I don't see a massive rebound in the UK economy. Um, so I, I actually think that the pound will be one of the, the, the major currencies to suffer. Uh, and then there's other countries who are kind of, you know, stuck in between these big regions, the Russia as an example. Um, and Russia is... I think slowly disengaging itself from the, the, the at least the Western system, if not the um, uh, the, the global system, uh, and I think currencies like that will begin to, to to suffer. Sure. And what about emerging market currencies? What about you, you know what would your thoughts be there in the next five years? I mean, I, I think I think what's going to happen. Um, in, I, I think some of the bigger emerging market currencies, um, the the one, the rand, um, I, I think will continue to be to be kind of liquid and viable. Um, what 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 what's the, the the really big wild card for me is is what happens to um, currencies in places like uh, Bangladesh, Africa, and whether there's any move to either. Um, have some to, to have a, a, a to peg currencies either to uh, local uh, currency benchmarks, renminbi, for example, or in Africa to the to the dollar, uh, or you see some kind of digital uh, currency across Africa. And I think that's going to be one of the big battle zones. Yeah, um, this really this is really fascinating, uh, Mike. I just wish we had more time, uh, but we're. We're, we're pretty much running out of time in the next few okay. minutes. So I just wanted to, um, one of the other things we wanted, we wanted to bring up, and you, you, you alluded a few minutes ago, the, the whole rise of uh, crypto. Um, it's something that uh, I've been following as, you know, as a trader for years. I, I, have, I have the unfortunate uh, uh, quote in, a, in, a, in an Irish newspaper going back to 2015 that this Bitcoin bubble is just about to crash. Um, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> You know, I can't, I can't get it off Google, you know what I mean? So I, I'm not the best guy on the whole crypto thing, but I've been proven wrong. And, you know, Bitcoin, you know, rallied up as high as $60,000 in April. It's still, I mean, it's it's come that, come off a lot. It's $33,000 at the moment, which for a string of code uh, is, is is quite a lot. And, and I'm just curious to get your thoughts on it. And, um, you know, I personally see a lot of value in crypto but i don't see the valuation in crypto that's yeah. kind of my position and and um you know i'd be very keen to to to, to understand where where your yeah. head's at on, on the whole crypto so, so so i i think finance is very interesting because you have all these new ecosystems uh you know you have the retail trading ecosystem the crypto ecosystem etc i i i'm very skeptical on uh, Bitcoin uh, as a as a money as a currency it's just not it's not viable it's not working etc um, and it is for me it's a kind of it's a high risk asset it has a, a highly debatable value but people who trade it don't don't seem to be don't push back on that they're happy to to, to trade it as a risk asset I, I think there there are parts of this of this whole field that are going to be very very interesting digital asset management. Um, has a huge future. Um, I think the big development, and, and for me, the, the really big picture issue is the, is the clash of decentralized finance, which is the world of, of you know, tokens, digital asset management, blockchain, etc. Is the clash of that with the centralized 
um, financial system, which is effectively run by central banks. It's, you know, money as we know it, it's the old banking system. And some companies are already on kind of the, uh, the meeting point of that. Uh, and what we're seeing, particularly in China, are, are, are efforts by different kind of regulators to uh, curb Bitcoin and crypto activity. And they're doing so by trying to limit the, the actual infrastructure, be it mining farms uh, or crypto brokers, etc. So, you know, if you go back in history, look at any innovation in finance, the, the first couple of years are, they're a bit lurid, they're exciting, they're, they're ugly, people make money and they lose lots of money. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not getting, I'm not too focused or too carried away on, on Bitcoin. I, I, I think well, we- would you, would you see a digital crypto US dollar in the next five years? Would that be something that you see as plausible? Yeah, so I mean, it won't be called a crypto dollar, it'll be called a digital dollar, and it'll be the same, exactly the same as, as the dollar. I mean, the, the big, and then you have these other things called stable coins, and, and a stable coin is, is effectively a, a sort of a digital, how would I say, wrapper or construct on a bunch of real world assets that are just put away and stored away to give uh, actual financial backing to this right. digital asset like it's pegged, um, pegged to, to the to the us dollar or a, a, exactly yeah so that there, there is actually kind of you know a bunch of gold bars in the vault in switzerland somewhere to the value of that stable coin um like, and, it, and the, like an etf then is it sort of like an exchange traded fund but, but not yeah yeah like a sensible etf you know it not doesn't <laughs> yeah. have too much leverage or, or financial engineering um, and the value of all the all of these things just lies in a number of things. It lies in greater efficiency of trading. Uh, it lies in being able to set up these kind of trustworthy contracts between parties to have certain networks where only certain people are allowed to to trade. Um, it will give it, digital, like the digital dollar, if and when it's launched by the Fed, um, it will give huge power to the Federal Reserve because. How it will work is that each of us will have uh, an account, well, in our case, with the European Central Bank or the Swiss National Bank. Um, and they can, you know, if they want to do QE, they may decide that, you know, all families with two kids will get a thousand Swiss francs and they just plop the money into your account. So yeah. we will be more connected than ever before to the, to the system, uh, which is actually the opposite of what the people who set, set Bitcoin up wanted to happen. I mean, it, it would be, it would be, yeah, it would be very beneficial for the government. It would, it would make crime very tough if they removed the paper. It, it would make tax evasion impossible. It will, yeah, you know, yeah. There's so, there's so many benefits. What would if 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 there was a, a digital dollar launch in the next couple of years? What what do you think that would do to the price to the price of the other, uh, you know, cryptocurrencies, uh, Bitcoin, etc. Yes, yeah, so, so you, I mean, you're already beginning to see to see this because in, in order for the digital dollar to, or, or digital, and it'll probably, I think in Europe, it'll probably be the digital pound will be the first one of the major currencies. Um, what you're already seeing is that the authorities are trying to kind of crush the crypto world um, in order to lay the ground for proper digital, uh, digital currencies. Uh, it, it will be a mixture of, you know, Y2K, introduction of the euro. Lots of people will kind of be, I mean, most people will be completely confused by it because it's, there's a lot of tech involved and explaining it to people will, will be difficult. So it'll be a, a big communication job. Um, and, and I think one, one area that makes me very uncomfortable is it gives central banks an enormous amount of power over people. They can just, you know, see right into your finances 
there is a risk that governments can countermand this knowledge as well uh, and, uh, and, and have greater control. So that, that's one of the big worries that I have. Yeah, um, let me see. We, we're running out of time now. We only have a, we only have a couple of minutes left, actually. Um, if you can stay on for a few more minutes. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. Um, do you own crypto, just to finish on this topic, I'm curious, or have you ever bought it, or would you ever buy it? Um, I, I don't own crypto now, no. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm going to launch is a kind of a fintech portfolio. So there will be companies in that which will have crypto exposure. So I'm, what I'm trying to do is get a, a purchase on the companies who are, I mean, the old phrase is the picks and shovels who are building the infrastructure. Understood, understood. Um, okay, well, look, um, maybe maybe we, we'll, we'll finish up at this point because it's just coming up to the hour, actually. Okay. Um, so um, thank you very much, Mike. I, I My pleasure, Barry. Yes, thanks. I wish, I wish we had uh, a lot more time uh, to get stuck in. Um, and, and uh, you know, maybe some, some point in the future, you'll come back on again. Um, hope so, yeah. yeah. And th thanks again, Michael Sullivan. Much appreciated. All the best. Okay, thanks, Barry. Bye. Bye.